0: awakening souls to our life in christ my name is mike q daniel and we are celebrating all that we have in christ jesus by grace be sure to share your questions or prayer requests at mikeqdaniel.com and i want to welcome you to mike q daniel live with the grace tribe Good morning, folks. I didn't have my volume on to hear the uh, intro ending. It took less time than I expected. I am excited to hang out with all of you today. Pulling up my uh, Q and A list, we had a question from Gina. I want to give you a little context to sort of how I look at the answer and the question that Gina is asking today. It's really good. Um, So I've been dealing with this long term kind of a chronic injury, uh, for decades. And then about a year and a half ago, I had kind of a subsequent injury where, uh, the discs, I don't have a lamina on my spine and the discs of my spine started, started to kind of all slip out at different times. And well, and I do have a lamina; it's just broken. They didn't remove it, which is part of the problem. So all that to say, um, About a year and a half ago, I started having a pretty bad nerve uh, impediment from discs that were slipping out of my neck and back. And anything that I would try to do because of the long-term injury would just exacerbate the short-term injury. And uh, so I've not done anything... uh, uh, besides kind of walk jogging a little bit here and there, hoping not re-injure, which I did again and again and again and again and again and again, again. I've not done any exercise to speak of in a long time. Uh, but I have been building up some running and I have set some running goals. I used to be quite the runner. And so I'm trying to build up to that without again, uh, causing, uh, disc slippage and nerve impaction. And, uh, that that's been a real challenge but last week i've been doing better as many of y'all know it hasn't come up in a long time so i've been doing much better and so last week um <laughs> just looking at some dumbbells <laughs> i got tired <laughs> just looking just considering what i might do for calisthenics i got sore i did a little bit of exercise last week and i mean very little and it really cost me i mean i could feel uh, the disc bulges uh, because they're just not held in place well, and I could feel uh, uh, the soreness, uh, just the, the DOMS, the delayed onset muscle soreness of not having worked out, which I'm not really used to because last I worked out, I could work out. I had been working out, and so I really didn't – I thought I went really, really light, and it just nearly killed me. And so I may have even looked a little funny early last week because I, you know, did this. And so it, it really, uh, cost me a lot. I, I mean, I was sore just looking at a list of calisthenics. <laughs> I was just real. It really cost me. And, uh, and honestly, it was, it was pretty miserable. And so I mean, that's fine. You know, that's okay. That's just life. And I am recovering. And this week. Oddly enough, this is crazy. This is to our topic. I'm beginning to think that I need to do a little more exercise. Like last week, it was so hard and now I'm starting to get over it. Praise God. I don't think I caused any long term issues. And now I'm thinking I need to do that again. And to someone who doesn't understand that, maybe. They're thinking, are you out of your mind? If it was so bad and so risky and hurt so much and has such high risk. Why in the world would you put yourself through that again if it was really that bad and you have a chronic injury and a short term injury and you're trying to overcome that by doing some exercise and it just it just causes more immediate problems if it is so costly, Mike. If it costs you a whole week of your life, I couldn't run the rest of the week. I didn't I didn't run. And so which is really what I've been doing. And so if that's the case, if the, the running I was starting to do, I could no longer do because I tried to do some calisthenics, not a big deal. Then why in the world would I do that again? I don't believe, Sherry, I really don't believe that no pain is no gain. I've heard that a lot too. I think that's a fallacy. Like if it doesn't hurt, it's not worthwhile. This coffee doesn't hurt. Mm. And it's very worthwhile. So uh, I don't believe in no pain, no gain. In fact, I think the best way for most people to exercise causes no pain. They're starting with less they can do and they're increasing within a very small margin. And so their body acclimates. I think what happens is we're very short term focused and we do stuff that's hard for us. We do too much too soon. It costs us more than it has to. Now I have some injuries, and that's just not ever going to be the case for me. It's going to always cost me, especially if I'm more out of shape in some seasons than others. Uh, but there's got to be, um, there's got to be a reason why. If it cost me so much last week, if it hurt so bad. If I literally lost sleep more nights than I gained sleep because of the pain that it caused, if it nearly caused, and I started to feel the protrusions, but I don't think there was actual uh, impacting of nerves, but I could feel the pain of discs that were bulging just didn't get so bad that it cost me uh, uh, nerve impaction at a high level. So it went back down, managed inflammation, If it's so bad, why in the world would someone do that? Why would someone do something that hurt so much and had such great risk? Just objectively, why would someone do that? After being so miserable from exercising last week, threatening to re-injure the weak disc structure that I have in my neck and upper back, fighting bad headaches for a week... Uh, reinciting my uh, long term chronic injury that because of the weak muscles in my uh, neck and back. So, multiple problems. Why would someone do that? And I'm here to tell you, you know, when you think, why in the world would I choose to ever do that again? I must be actually nuts. I say all of that as the backdrop for Gina's question. Here's what she asked What in God? What in our our Heavenly Father, what about him, made him come after us and provide so precious a sacrifice, Christ's sacrifice, to bring us to him? What in God made him come after us and provide so precious a sacrifice to bring us to him? I think this is such a critical question. We come to God out of our need, but why did God come to us? We come to God out of our need and he needed nothing. We come to God because we have no other choice and he did have a choice. I usually look at Hebrews twelve two for this kind of a, a question. Hebrews twelve two says that uh, we should fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. The joy set before him endured the cross. Uh, Scorning its shame, he hated the cross. Understandably, he begged God for another way. He did not like the cross. But having endured the cross, scorning its shame, sat down at the right hand of God. He did the work. What's the joy? Until you can own the joy of Christ in you, it's very hard to own the sacrifice of Christ for you. Until you can own the joy of Christ of you, it's very hard to own the sacrifice of Christ for you. If I can't embrace Christ's joy of me, that he really loves me, if I refuse to be lovable in my own thinking to him, if I don't believe that he loved me that like that, that it was joy to him, then how do I ever embrace the cross for me? You got to own it, my friends. You're the joy. The only thing that Jesus entered heaven with after the crucifixion and resurrection, the only thing he entered with that he didn't have before he left in the first place was you. In fact, he gave up everything that heaven had to offer to give you everything that heaven had to offer. And when he went back to set down with the father where he was to begin with, having given up all of the glory that he shared with God to come and give his life in the lowliest of circumstances for you, he sat down having known in advance what he went to do and having accomplished what he went to do and happy with the results, happy with the results, The joy. Of you. I teach on Romans, uh, not, I teach on Romans a lot too, but on Hebrews 12, too. I, I use that verse a lot because it's so powerful to me. God did not send Christ for a message, a mission, a movement. I didn't mean for all of those to be alliterated. Message, mission, movement, for a book, for a doctrine, for a group. A cause, per se. Christ died for relationship with you. And we think, how is that possible? And so I love to look at how horrible the cross is to show how valuable you are to Christ. He knew what he was paying, and he knew what he was getting, and it was joy worth the cross. The world and the enemy through the systems of this world, and the enemy through the programming of the fallen flesh that we operate in so often in our thinking. Let's just call that the world, right? The fallenness of the world and man in our flesh, even though we are no longer, you are no longer fallen because you are not the flesh. You are reborn in Christ if you're a believer. So the world including the fallenness of the flesh that no longer defines you. It's in you, but it's not you. All of that would show you, teach you, train you, convince you that you are not worth the cost of the cross. There is no book that can prove to you your value to God. You just have to at some point believe him. He died for relationship with you. He was resurrected for union with you. And he sat down at the right hand of the God to bring you home with him. Worth it. So when I do these broadcasts, I'm looking at the comment thread and there's a little window of my... Uh, my video next to the comments in the software that I use to do these videos, so I can see your comments and I can see me, and I think of you looking in a window or me looking at camera right now and going in first person. I am worth the cross to Christ. He knew what he was paying. And he knew what he was getting, and he chose it in advance. In fact, it's even better than that. And he's happy with the result. He was not surprised by how hard the cross was, and he is not disappointed in what he got for that cost. He knew. He knows. And he's not wrong. He knew the cost and the return. And he knows what he got. And he's not wrong to be joyous about what he gained. Once you imagine happy God, the world teaches angry God. God's not angry. There is wrath towards sin because it's killing his kids. It'd be like, (laughs) sin is the cancer killing humanity. So yes, there is wrath towards sin. He will irradiate sin with the radiating power of his glory. He will annihilate sin. There's no question. And he's going to pay with the very cost of his blood for you and I to have the choice to not stay in the sin he will destroy. But it is not people that God has wrath toward. It is sin, and he's paid the ultimate cost to prove love for you so that you will embrace his sacrifice exiting sin and entering Christ because he loves you. And he hates the sin that's killing you. And like so many things in this life, if I don't get out of the cancer, the cancer's gonna kill me. The world, there's a lot of theology in this statement, and I'm not gonna unpack it all because I wanna get back to another passage that addresses Gina's question, which I think is so powerful. But the world is already dead. The people in the world are not brought to life in Christ. To be born in Adam is to be born in darkness and death. Jesus is not killing or condemning anyone. He is saving and freeing everyone who will receive it. But what saves us is not a transaction. What saves us is a relationship. What he paid was to make the relationship possible. But the relationship is a choice. Or it's not a relationship. Forgiveness was necessary for the relationship, and the relationship is what saves us. So he paid for everyone out of his love so that we get to choose to enter into relationship with God through Christ. This is such important theology. So much errant theology is born around this idea that your faith causes. His sacrifice, but it is just grace that causes the sacrifice. It's faith that enters into the relationship. Forgiveness is necessary for relationship with God. But it's the relationship with God that saves you. Jesus said eternal life is this, knowing God the Father and Jesus Christ whom he has sent, knowing them. When uh, Jesus talking about the judgment, he says people are going to say, hey, we did all these great things. We were such good people. We did stuff in your name. We represented you well. And he's like, well, I never knew you. I never knew you. It was never about you and me. You never had a relationship with me. You think that what you do will save you, even if you do it in my name, even if you think you're doing it for me, but it's the relationship that saves you. Paul says, how much more if we've been forgiven by his sacrifice, how much more will we be saved by his life? Listen, Christ's life in union with you, the relationship that you have with him, that is salvation. Forgiveness makes salvation possible. Does that make sense? You're saved by his life. You're forgiven through his death. It it gets me every time. So I say that because it's opportune, and I'm seeing so much weak theology. It's okay. But teachers should not be talking about salvation by forgiveness. We should be talking about salvation through union and relationship, fellowship, gracious sufficiency, meeting meeting faithful receptivity. I'm willing to receive what Christ paid for my sins so that I can enter into the family of God. In fact, not only not only did Jesus know what the cross was going to cost him and know what he was going to get for that cost, which is you, not only did he know that and knows it, and is happy with the exchange, listen, he didn't just know it from eternity past, he planned it. Just think about the implications of that for a moment. Ephesians 1, uh, I'm going to read this out of the Living Bible, which I almost never use because this is not a word-for-word word or even phrase-by-phrase Greek-to-English translation. This is a uh, a paraphrase, but I've studied this verse a lot, and I think that uh, while you cannot do a word study from the Living Bible, the Living Translation, the TLB version, um. There's a nuance to this translation that is so powerful, and I think it is true to the heart of the text, or I wouldn't use it. Uh, so I've studied the original language. I've studied, I think, probably every major translation of this verse for years, these verses, and I think this is a really useful translation for getting an idea across of what Paul is saying. So here's the Living Bible, TLB version of Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 5. Just listen to this. Let this saturate into your soul. Let the Holy Spirit receive through the ears of you, the body, and translate to the soul your thinking, feeling, and behaving. Let that saturate your soul from the spirit upward, from the spirit outward. If you're tempted to copy and paste this, please don't. I want people to hear it. How we praise God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray. How we praise God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has already blessed us with every blessing in heaven, Because we belong to Christ. He's already blessed us with everything heaven has to offer because we belong to Christ. The literal translation would say in Christ. You're in Christ. And so in him, you have everything heaven has to offer. Verse four, long ago, even before he made the world. Before he made the world, God chose us to be his very own. He picked you before he ever made you, before he even made the context for you. Before your grandparents' grandparents were a thought in their parents' mind, he picked you. Long ago, even before he made the world, God chose us to be his very own through what Christ would do for us. He didn't just choose you. He chose the way he was going to redeem you. He decided then to make us holy, set apart for his purposes, by his divine power, holy, to make us holy In his eyes, without single fault, you are blameless in his eyes. And he's not wrong. You might not be blameless in your eyes. You might have done things that are blameful, but he sees you rightly. Without fault. Blameless. We who stand before him, it says covered, but I would say filled with his love. This is the re- this verse verse 5 is the reason I wanted to share this. His unchanging plan has always been to adopt us into his own family by sending Jesus Christ to die for us and he did this because he wanted to. He wanted to do it, he did it, and now he's happy about it. Verse 6 says this. Now, now All praise to God for his wonderful kindness to us. I'm sorry, all praise to God. Why? Because he's worth our sacrifice, which he is. All praise to God for his wonderful kindness. All glory to God because of his kindness and grace. He is not glorified by how well I do. He's glorified when I recognize how well he's done, how great he is, how awesome he is toward me. His character and love toward me is to his glory. His grace is to his glory. My effort is to my own credit. My work speaks of me. His work speaks of him. All praise to God for his wonderful kindness. All praise to God for his wonderful kindness to us and his favor, his grace that he has poured out upon us because we belong to his dearly loved son. So overflowing is his kindness toward us that he took away all of our sins, I will say at great expense, right? Through the blood of his son, by whom we are. Saved. I want to directly answer Gina's beautiful question. What in God made him willing to sacrifice, to come after and sacrifice so beautifully for us? Well, God's very nature is love, it's who he is. And being love. He created you as a being who is not God and has relational viability. The angels are created as servants. Not that they couldn't rebel. Some did. But that doesn't mean that they have relational viability. They're created as servants. You're created to be children. You're born as a child and grow up as a relational being. They're not. So he is created not God, but like God. You are relational like God. You have the capacity to receive and give love sacrificially in relationship, to trust and depend and grow and sacrifice and exchange emotionally in union with him. The angels do not have union. The angels are not in a true, authentic relationship. Their relationship is like a cog on a wheel. Something spins and spins something else. They are caused by something. They can rebel, but that doesn't mean they're relationally viable. God created you as like God, relational, but not God. You have a soul, a relating to God's soul. And how you re- relate to him is your choosing because that's authentic relationship. You get to choose. And the... The relating soul of Mike Daniel and Sheila Davis and Dan White, the relating soul gets to trust God and gets to learn God and gets to choose relational dependence upon God so that we can experience what is true of God. We can experience his love. We can sacrifice in our trust, we can give up our felt desires for his fulfillment of our truest desires out of our trust for him. I think that I want to be lazy and he thinks he's made me for work and I can trust him and choose to work, though I don't feel like it. The heart that he has given me is set ablaze for him and not for the world. But if I pursue the world, I'm believing a lie. I can still be lied to, people. I have a new heart, but I can be deceived. The heart doesn't deceive me, but I can be deceived. I have a new heart. But what I think I want in my childishness is often more donuts. And what he has made me for and will bring me joy and is worth the cost, is trust, Uh, work, relational work, trust. Trust is relational exercise. Choosing, sacrificially. So he created not God, you and me, but like God. We're like God, not God, so that he could give himself away to somebody. He created you and I as the recipients of his very character. He loves you by giving you him. Jesus died for you so that he could give his life to you. And as you trust him, increasingly, he lives his life through you. It's his doing by grace. It's my choosing by faith. It's his doing by grace. I don't earn it. My faith earns nothing. My faith is not a meritorious act. It is choosing to trust what he does by grace because it's his grace that speaks of his character. It's his grace that speaks of how wonderful he is. It's his grace that brings him glory. It's not my effort. Look at how hard Mike is working for God. See, that speaks of me. Instead, look at how great God is that he's worth the cost of trust, the cost a sacrifice, the cost of real worship. Look at how great God is, that he's worth that, worth so much more than that. His grace is worthy of our praise. We don't obey him because our work glorifies him. We obey him because our trust shows his grace Shows his value, shows his love is worth it to us. He loves us by his direction and provision at great cost to himself. And we love him by giving up what we think we want as our immature in our immaturity. We then choose to trust him instead. It's not that our heart is bad. It's that our heart is only fulfilled by what we do not yet know of his sufficiency, of his direction, of his empowerment. We get to be the children of God. You never get to be the parent of God or the peer of God, the sibling of God. You get to be the child of God, by which we, in the spirit of Christ, cry out, Abba, Daddy, Father, Romans 8 says, Romans 8, 13. So first for the, uh, I want to make this statement again. He created you like God, but not God so he could give himself away to you. That's what love does. It gives itself away in Christ. That's who you are. So first for the sake of authentic relationship, that's why he did it. What in him? Why did God create? Not not just be willing to give himself away for your sin, but set it up as necessary because he cares more about the relationship, about loving you and you receiving it than he cares about your sinlessness and your behavior. You realize that sin is not the problem. Being unloved is the problem. By our sinning and needing redemption, he solved the love-trust problem. He doesn't of course he wants you to be sinless. Of course he does. He doesn't want you to sin. But his agenda is not sinlessness where there would not have been two trees in the garden. His agenda is relationship and that requires sacrifice and love and receptivity and trust and faith meeting grace in this economy of a new covenant that he promised from the very beginning. Sinlessness is not the goal. Relationship, union eternal fellowship in the innermost being. That's the goal. So first, for the sake of authentic relationship, this is the greatest litmus test, by the way, of sound doctrine or false doctrine as well, because it was always about authentic relationship. By grace through faith, by grace through faith. Faith does not cause relationship. His grace has afforded us relationship and faith believes him, chooses him, like flipping on a light switch, turns on the lights. I'm not creating electricity. Louis getting excited, my dog. You realize when I sit in this chair, I'm not creating the chair. When I flip on the light switch, I am not creating electricity. I'm believing that the light switch allows electricity I did not create through wires I did not drop in light fixtures I did not, you know, blow the glass for. It creates light and I'm operating by faith in a light switch. I am choosing to trust the light switch works. I'm choosing to trust that God's life in me works and I have to sacrifice what I want to cause and be in control of for myself. I don't get to be the light maker. I just get to be the guy who flips the switch. So first, for the sake of authentic relationship, it requires his grace and my belief. But my belief doesn't earn the grace. His grace glorifies him. So second, it's to make his true loving nature known. I love that Paul says we cannot know, we cannot, or that's in the negative. He says in the positive that we know what love is in this that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. We know how loved we are only because he died when we didn't deserve it. Your faith doesn't earn his sacrifice, your faith doesn't earn indwelling. Your faith isn't meriting union and salvation. There's no good work. That is faith. Faith is how we do, right? Trusting him is how we do good works with God. It's how we participate. So when it says uh, faith for good works, it's not saying that faith is a work. It's saying that our works are by faith, not faith is a work. Do you see the difference? Faith is not a good work. Faith is how we trust God to participate in his work. I'm choosing. I get to choose all the time. I can choose wrongly. I can choose rightly. So when we choose to trust him... Then his grace and our trust of his grace proves worth it just like his relationship with us was worth the cross our sacrificial trust is a living sacrifice to him our choosing to trust him to be available to him to let him direct us to let his love motivate us he then lives through us to the praise of the glory of his grace his grace saves us and his grace works through us we don't earn some kind of respect by loving other people we're dim- demonstrating the love of God for us. So first it's for authentic relationship. That's what Christ died for. And it was worth the cross. Second, it was to make his loving nature known. He, we only know how loved we are because when we didn't deserve it before we accepted it, he died for us. That's love. If it's deserved, it's not love. Anyone who tells you that you had to choose him before he could die for you is misunderstanding love. And it's all about love. He died for people that would reject him because he loves them. He doesn't love me more because I accept him. He adopts me when I accept him. And then he crucifies and resurrects and recreates me as something entirely new. Having adopted me, I become his indwelt spiritually union child. So first, authentic relationship. Worth it. Second, because it's his nature. True, loving nature made known. Third, to be glorified by his grace and kindness. Nothing you do, nothing you do Speaks of him, it speaks of you. But what you let by faith, him do through you, that does not speak of you. (gasps) Oh, what great faith Vanessa has. No, what a great God Vanessa has hope in. So he's glorified. What you do speaks of you. God will be glorified by his grace. Look how great God is. Just think about that. What glorified God? He's not glorified because you were so gracious to accept him. He's glorified that he loved you so much to give his life for you. And our receiving it makes that life and love known. If who he is, if his being is fundamentally loving, then giving himself away is being who he is and are acknowledging it are receiving it are believing him makes him known to us experientially and to others for his renown if being who he is is giving himself away then being who you are is receiving him if being who he is is giving himself away that's love then being who you are is receiving him when he gives himself away what you're made for. So it was always his plan to make us, not God, but like God, like God, but not God, relational beings, body, soul, and spirit, so that he could sacrificially give himself away because that's his nature. And we can trust him at the expense of our own agenda. He is worthy of our trust. So we receive his work instead of try to accomplish our own. His righteousness, his blamelessness, his sacrifice. I need it. I'll take it. I'll trust it. God being loved means that he created us to give himself away. This is not only true of him, but it means that you are worth it to him. But it also means not only that, it also means That he is happy about that exchange because that's what he made you for. It was his nature lived out toward you to make himself known experientially in relationship with you. So it's who he is, and he made you to make himself known by giving himself to you. But not only that, even better than that, number sort of three levels deep here, it also means that it's who we are in Christ. When you're reborn in Christ, you are remade like him as you were always designed to be receiving his love. You become loving. You become sacrificially available at your expense for other people. It's who we are. Sacrificial love is the singular earmark of the indwelling life of Christ. So not only is he being who he is to love you and you're being who you are to receive him, But he's happy about it. And not only is he happy about it, but that's who you're going to be through him. You will be most satisfied by his love expressed through you. It's who you are, loved and loving, just like Jesus. It's who you are, loved and loving. We don't always feel that way. But we won't be satisfied because we're not made for anything less than his love to us and through us. His love to us and through us. You know, Jesus was asked, and we'll close with this. He was asked, what's the most important commandment? In Jesus, knowing that you cannot keep the commandments. The commandment was given to show that you needed Jesus. The commandment was given to show you needed a righteousness from God. You couldn't be the cause of your own. The law was given train us up in grace. The law was given to teach us dependence, not self-efficacy. So knowing this, knowing that the commands that God gave the Israelites were not for us to fulfill, to accomplish, they were for us to learn that we need dependence, not self-reliance, but God dependence. So knowing this, the, the Jews, the, the Pharisees and, and scribes were always debating, well, what are the heaviest laws? That was their language. What's the heaviest and lightest of the laws? What's the, the weightiest and the least weighty? What are the things that we can do? And that has the greatest impact. And what are the things that really don't matter? Like, you know, tithing the spices, you know, what, what are the big, what's the big deal and what's not the big deal? What's truest of God's character in the law? So, when they come to jesus and 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 they see that he's answering with such wisdom, they were trying to trick him. But one of the scribes sees the wisdom and authority with which Jesus is dealing with them, and so he brings out his authentic question, he goes, "Well, Rabbi, since you're in essence, since you're answering all of our trickery with such wisdom and authority, let me ask you my real question: What's the heaviest?" What's the biggest, what's the most important commandment? What's the big kahuna of the commandments? And Jesus knows that the commandments are not to be accomplished. The law is not given to make you righteous. It's to prove you need him to. Does that make sense? The law was teaching us we cannot be the cause of righteousness. That is its purpose. God loves you enough to teach you you cannot live a self-reliant life. You need a righteousness from God, not from Mike, not from Marie, not from Laura. You need a, a righteousness from God by grace. That was the purpose of the law, to undo the lie of the wrong tree in the garden. I can know good and evil and I can do good and I can do good and avoid evil. That was the law or that was the lie in the garden. And God gave us the law because or gave the Israelites before the new covenant didn't even give it to me, gave them the law as his chosen people to demonstrate his reliability, not their self-righteousness. So, since he did that, when someone asked him, the scribe said well what's the what's the most important commandment what's the thing we should use as our guidepost? All these different Pharisees, all these different rabbis have their have their yoke of doctrine and they base it on, you know, not bearing false witnesses, the most important, it's their doctrinal mindset. We're going to take these laws and these practices and we're going to put them into practice and have a better life and serve God for more glory. They all have these different yokes of teaching, these doctrinal ideas that, that they're representing is the best way, the best philosophical grid to approach the law. Jesus, you're speaking with such wisdom and authority. I really do. Finally, instead of just tricking you, I actually want to know what the most important commandment is. All these different yokes of teaching what's right And Jesus, knowing that they can't. And that's not the point. It says, well, the most important law is to love God with your whole being. And the second one, inescapably, is just like it, to love others as yourself. You see, what does God do in us? He woos us into a love relationship only he can cause because we cannot love him without being loved by him. We cannot earn his character. And if we receive it from him, what's the result? He, in us, gives himself away through you. The God who gave his life for you and has put his life in you will live his life through you because what he did for you in giving himself to you is exactly what he wants to do through you. He wants to divinely love through his divine presence and power everyone around us. In a very real way, Jesus said, people are going to attack me and that's perfect because I can then love them in a way they can't escape. People will reject me in a way that's perfect because I can then love them and they know they didn't deserve it. Peter was crushed in his soul, not because uh, he was so horrible, but he realized he didn't deserve how loved he was. There's a real gift in that God sacrificed and gave his life and loves us as the object of his desire when we do not deserve it. And some of us, especially the really churched ones like me, have to learn we don't deserve it by messing up and then being loved anyway. And we stand in awe of God and his love for us, that he loves us as much as ever when we deserve it the absolute least. Love God with your whole being. Oh, by the way, you can't. And love others as if they're yourself, which you can't. But when we have sufficiency in Christ, guess what he does? We who are like God become expressors of God without ever being God. He has given himself away to you, and he will give himself away being love through you. So, my friends, my prayer, as always. is that you would know him today because it's the relationship that is worth the cross to him. And he's not wrong. If the relationship he wants with you is worth the cross to him, imagine what it's worth to you. Our sacrifice is the measure of the value of that which we purchase by it. And my lying beliefs are all set straight When I set the value of my relationship with him, my obedience and trust of him is higher than what I could gain striving in the flesh for myself. God's not wrong about you. He is right about the worth of relationship between you and him. It's me that's wrong. I'm learning. I'm getting more accurate in my perspective of how valuable that really is. I knew it was valuable yesterday, and I know it's even more valuable Today, it didn't change in its value. I just change in my understanding of it. Every day, I get to know him more. And I grow in grace because I depend upon him. He gives and leads direction and provision as a good dad. That's his love for me. And the more I receive his provision and follow his direction, that's my love as his child. I love him back. By obedience. That's why John fifteen draws such fourteen and fifteen draws such a correlation between love and obedience. Not because well, he I owe him. That's not love. If I owe him, that's not love. That's transactional. If I love him, it's because I trust him and I'm going to follow his direction, even at my expense of what's worldly. He's worth it to me. That's love. He's worth. Sacrifice doesn't cost me more than his love gains me. So his provision and his direction, I'm going to trust. That's love. The love of a father gives and directs. The love of a son receives and follows. I trust his direction more than my own lying desires, lying feelings my heart will soar only at the direction of God. So I have a new heart and I'm often wrong about it. It's not a its not a lying heart. It's a lying world and lying flesh and lying beliefs that miss out on the truth of God's love and direction. So he's not inviting me to do more for him. He's inviting me to trust him for what only he can do in and through me the lover of my soul and the soul of all around me. Kelly, Sherry, Vicki, Dan, Jenna, my hope is that you will know your soul will be loved by God's love through me. I can't do that, but I can be available and the sacrifice of what I might use people for demonstrates his love to you. So know him today. It's what he died for. He's in you. Grow in grace today. He's enough for you. And as you know him and grow in grace, go love like crazy. It's who you are in him. And my friends, I will see you tomorrow as we continue this wonderful week of Q&A. So we take topics from questions that we can just go a little deeper in than fill in the blank. We're doing essay answers. The topics raised in the questions that are on your heart. So share your questions about what's going on in your life, about how to respond to a circumstance, about what grace looks like in light of something else that you've heard or are experiencing, about a teaching you've heard you can't quite reconcile with the New Covenant uh, about something that you want to know, because the questions that God is allowing to bubble to the surface from your heart are where He wants to operate with the truth. And excise from your thinking, lying beliefs. It's where discipleship really happens, not, not because of information, but because of the relationship received through the truth, because Jesus is the truth. So ask your questions and let's, let's saturate that part of your soul with the life and truth of Christ in you. Love you guys. Have a fantastic rest of your day. See you tomorrow.